Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of The American Attic, where we deliver dialogue-driven explorations of California history and beyond. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover topics that inspire imagination, inform action, and enrich the present. Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of The American Attic. Our guest today is a retired professor of strategy and international law from the U.S. Naval War College, and he brings a host of experience to the conversation. He brings a host of background to the table of what we'll be discussing today. Some highlights from this guest's career include serving on faculties at Stanford, Pepperdine, and other universities. He has also worked for the Department of Defense. He finished his dissertation while at the Rand Corporation, and he has served as chief of staff to the U.S. House International Relations Committee. So along with that, our guest has also participated in in negotiations to enlarge NATO through Eastern Europe, and he's also been involved in the discussion of informing democracies and informing constitutional reforms uh, around the world, really, uh, including countries like Montenegro, Poland, South Africa. And in this episode, we take a look at the conflict in Ukraine from approximately a year in. This recording was done in January of 2023, so we are approaching the one-year anniversary that Russian vehicles rolled into Ukrainian territory And in this episode, we really kind of dive into the current status of the conflict, um, the scope and forms that USAID has taken to Ukraine and some of the support that's been given there, as well as a host of other topics. But before we do, it's important to keep in mind that our guest brings to the table decades worth of experience in this area, and that informs this discussion of this Ukrainian conflict that is remarkably complex. I mean, every conflict is, but there's a lot of layers here that we dive into, including geopolitical considerations, cultural considerations, economic considerations, and my personal favorite, historical considerations, as we explore the different angles to what's been going on. And sometimes it's useful to keep in mind that despite all of these different layers to not only this conflict, but really any conflict, it's all set against the backdrop of the lives that are impacted. The people whose lived experience day in and day out is this conflict. And for them, it's a lot more real than for those of us that are enjoying a relatively conflict-free home. And in the spirit of inquiry and exploration that we try and include in every episode of The American Attic, we dive in right off the bat into some of these discussions and considerations around the Ukraine conflict. So buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, and please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jim Armstead. So again, Jim Armstead, thank you for joining us on the American Attic Show. Appreciate you taking the time this Friday afternoon. Uh, you're actually, this is just occurring to me now, you're our first returning guest. So that is a, a feather in the cap for you. Uh, so thank you again for, for joining us. Um, I was so bad the first time you're giving me a chance to make up. I appreciate that. <laughs> of Eric. course. Of course. Um, and I thought we could start off, you know, as we approach the you know, the 12-month mark, the one-year mark since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, February of 2022, I, I wanted to just start things off, you know, by getting your kind of candid thoughts on the state of the war now. Um, how How is Ukraine doing in your estimation? How is Russia doing in your estimation? Um, and then we can start from there. Okay, sounds good. Well, as you pointed out, we're a little, we're, we're more than 11 months into the war. Uh, we uh, two three phases we've gone through the initial attack on a 270 degree arc around the country five axes of attacks the uh, the most serious of course the 85 miles from Belarus directly down to the capital to Kiev 
that was blunted. That okay. took about three months, and it was a very serious attack. The um, paratrooper, a paratrooper brigade was dropped at the three major airports around Kyiv, and a column, a tank column, uh, was charging south to support and meet up with those forces uh, and take the capital. Uh-huh. Well, the, the initial paratrooper attack was uh, was blunted. The column coming south, the, uh, the Ukrainians uh, actually were very skilled at knocking out not the lead, the spearhead of the column, the tanks. Yeah. They knocked out the supply vehicles, the fuels. Yeah. You think about our tank, the the uh, the vaunted M1 A1, or now we're at the SPE4. Mm-hmm. But, uh, with a turbine engine, it gets about um, one mile to four gallons of gas. Can so I, if you, Jim, can I ask a quick clarifying question? Um, yes, sir. Uh, so you mentioned five axis, a uh, five axis front. Is that the same as like a five front? So early on in the early months, there were five yes. separate yes. fronts. So we're okay. coming down there, two two axes of attacks on each side of the Dnieper River toward Kiev. Okay. There was a, a an axis across the Donbass. Uh, the rebels already held a good portion of the Donbass mm-hmm. and with Russians already there. So they come in from the east across the Russian border. Then the Russians are coming up out of Crimea okay. into the center of uh, of Ukraine okay. to put pressure from the south of Kiev. Now that's a bit further yeah. in terms. We probably should have a map yeah. to uh, talk about that. And then, of course, the Russians began to move south out of Donbass. Okay. Now, Donbass is the northeastern corner. Of the Ukraine, okay. it consists of two provinces: that's Donetsk uh, and Lugansk. South of that, along the Sea of Azov, there are two additional oblasts, two mm-hmm. larger, two large provinces that are right along the Sea of Azov, which would create a land bridge from Russian land down to Crimea. Okay. So you don't have to supply Crimea across a bridge or with ferries. You can supply from the land. So the attacks on Mariupol, uh, you remember that, and Sebastopol, those were going on back in the uh, late winter, early spring. Yeah. That was going after two additional provinces, Zaporozhye and Kershan. Kershan is a city a little bit north of the neck that goes down into the Crimean Peninsula. So if you've got those four provinces, you can move Russian supplies, troops, rail lines right into Crimea and support it with everything except water. Got it. Water comes from the other side of Crimea through a canal from mainland Ukraine. That was cut off in 2014 when the Russians took Crimea. So water was and continues to be a problem, but everything else you could bring in. Sure. And I would imagine so, that presents all sorts of uh, tactical considerations that, that leaders. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, That's uh, a very difficult problem. Water's heavy. You know, water weighs eight pounds a gallon. Uh-huh. But you've got to move water for three million people who live in the Crimean Peninsula, plus the soldiers you have on the ground to hold it. And that is the home port of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. It's in Sevastopol. That's the whole reason for the war. Yeah. So so politically, the reason for the war is the Ukrainians asked to join the EU and NATO. Mm-hmm. The geographic reason for the war is that Russia wants to keep Sevastopol. This was the reason for the Crimean War 150 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, you know, gee, we've seen this before. When, when did, just to refresh my memory, when did Ukraine ask at, but ballpark, you know, asked to join the, the EU or NATO? Well, they started moving towards the EU principally uh-huh. uh, in the early um, uh, the, the, the early aughts of the of the century. Got it. So 2005, 2006, problems with Russia and the gas supply. The one of the major or two of the major pipelines go through Ukraine from one of them the Ukraine gets paid in gas for allowing their land to be used. Uh, 2007, eight, there were problems with the Russians claiming the Ukrainians have to pay more. The price of gas had gone up, but they were paid on a percentage basis. So the Russians are now saying, okay, you can keep the same percentage, but you've got to give us more than just the use of the land because oil prices around the world, as you remember, uh, they went sky high. Yeah. Oil and gas prices. Yeah. So that was a problem. 
Now, we've had four presidents of the Ukraine uh, since the turn of the century. The first president was uh, whose wife actually is from Chicago. So the first lady of Ukraine in 2000, she's from uh, she's from Chicago. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So she's she's a U.S. uh, U.S. citizen. She's Ukrainian, but she's a U.S. citizen. Uh And uh, there was Chicago had a real nexus with uh, with a lot of Ukrainians live in Chicago, by the way. It's a a Ukrainian city in a lot of ways. Okay. So the country was starting to move west. They wanted to increase trade, that sort of thing. Then the um, Viktor Yanukovych was elected in 2009 after the argument starts about the amount of gas and the price of gas and what's going to go on. He is very Russian-oriented. Okay. So when the parliament pushed him to back away from the Russians. His, his, the policy of his administration was not supported by the parliament. That's the, uh, the, the Maiden revolution. Maiden means Europe. Okay. So the, uh, the, the Maiden square is the European square. That's where the demonstration started. Uh, snipers were placed on the roof. About 40 people, 50 people were killed. Yeah. I mean, it was quite violent, yeah. actually. So the demonstrations got out of hand. They were violent. The government started shooting people. Yeah. And Yanukovych was literally the parliament got rid of him. That they exercised. Now the Russians say that he was illegally thrown out. Now the Ukrainians exercise their own internal rules where a president can be dismissed if he gets two sure. non-support votes. So he gets two votes of no confidence. Mm-hmm. President's dismissed. So. And that's a he uh, runs away. And that's that's a a, a constitutional safeguard that Ukraine has yes, set up. That's okay. a constitutional safeguard. Got it. So that the the executive is a tool of the legislative branch. Yeah. And they are intermixed in that the president is elected separately, but he cannot appoint a cabinet without approval, and he can't stay in office uh, without approval. But it takes two votes. It's a very serious, and it's it's a high bar. Okay. They need it. He has to leave. He literally runs away in the middle of the night, uh, goes across. A, a Russian helicopter comes in, picks him up, flies him across the Russian border. Uh, his um, his palatial mansion is uh, is raided wow. by the citizenry, not by the government. And they find, you know, gold toilets and Jeez. lots of uh, state treasures, state art treasures. That he isn't signed for. These are things that came out of museums, yeah. in addition to this vast amount of wealth uh, yeah. that he had. Another election was held, and um, Viktor Poroshenko, who is a candy magnate, he's a billionaire, sells candy. I think there may be some Poroshenko candy around here somewhere. Uh-huh. When you teach there, you arrive, you know, there's a welcoming basket, you get some Poroshenko chocolate. Sure. So I immediately thought, hey, this guy can't be all bad. <laughs> he sells chocolate. The chocolate was pretty was pretty good. Yeah. So Poroshenko um, immediately, he, he gets the, he's Western oriented, mm-hmm. but he gets where parliament is com- coming from. So he immediately lets the Russians know that in 2017, they are not going to renew the lease on Sevastopol. Yeah. At which point, the Russians are thinking, we don't have an equivalent. Now, remember, they've got their own Black Sea coast, and they've got naval bases and port cities on the Sea of Azov on the Russian side of it. Yeah. So, you know, why they want the Ukrainian side of the Sea of Azov really has nothing to do with their defense capability. Yeah. Um, but they're going to lose the uh, continuation of the lease. That's the next. Uh, it's supposed to be re- renewed, I think, until 2040. Okay. That was what the deal was. So you have it until 2017 with the possibility of a renewal. He says, no, we're not going to renew because, you know, you're doing things on our territory. We're worried about this. At that point, there was already a movement in the Donbass, a separatist movement. Now, the eastern third of the Ukraine are principally Russian speakers. 80 to 90 percent of the folks speak Russian. They're they're ethnically Russian. Mm-hmm. This comes out of World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens is that uh, a number of Ukrainians were, shall we say, welcoming and friendly to the initial German invasion. Okay. They saw that as liberating them from the uh, from the Russian yoke, from yeah. the communist yoke. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Stalin makes them pay for that. Yeah. So a lot of those people are removed. Tartars, in particular, he goes after, and Tartars by the million. I think you know 
five or six million. We're talking yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, remember, Ukraine only has now 43 million people. They're that's, probably, that's a contemporary number, 43 million? Yeah, there are probably 39 million there now. Okay. Three to five million have left the country. Some have come back. Yeah. I would think, uh, but, but 43 million was where we were before the war started. Okay. So okay. if four million people left, now there weren't 43 million then, but if, if four million left, we're talking 10% of the population. Yeah. Those folks were replaced by Russians and industry was brought in. So a number of these cities, uh, like Kharkiv uh, in the Donbass in the uh, north, mm -hmm. uh, which is right on the Russian border, mm -hmm. um, Kharkiv was, um, factories were brought in, were put there, and they build things that the Russians use. Yeah. So it's that, that part of, of, of the Ukraine has these Russian speakers, and the economy is tied to Russia. They yeah. make things, for example, the rest of Ukraine, they like German refrigerators. Mm -hmm. uh, so they they buy uh, things that you would find, you know, Kuhn and other uh, brands that would look familiar to you. Well, in the eastern part of the Ukraine, that eastern third, yeah. they make refrigerators that still use Freon that are sold to the Russians. Mm -hmm. So if you need a 1955 refrigerator for a movie you're making, mm -hmm. this is the place you could you could buy your brand new uh, old-fashioned refrigerator. Yeah. So, so they're tied politically, they're tied ethnically, and they're tied economically. The Russians give these rebels support. They provide arms, and then they bring in, out of uniform, Russian soldiers as trainers and to help man the barricades and yeah. support them. So that happens in 2014. Okay. When there are soldiers guarding the naval bases already in Crimea. And this so is suddenly, Russian, Russian occupied Crimea. Yes, Russian okay. occupied Crimea. So the the Russians, they're there legally. Yeah. I mean, they have a lease on these naval bases, and of course, they have their own military to guard. These are you know submarines and ships are very valuable. Uh -huh. Nuclear weapons are there, so they've got some army already there. So that that army literally takes over the uh, takes over Crimea. Yeah. And a lot of the Ukrainian speakers, now that's about already, you know, maybe out of that, that three and a half, four million folks that are down there, about half of them were Russian speakers. Mm -hmm. And a high percentage of the Russians and the Ukrainian speakers are retirees. Yeah. This is, think about Florida. This is like Florida. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, the, the joke was from the, the economic people in yeah. the Ukraine is that Russia invaded our social security system. Okay. So you took these guys who are retired who aren't producing things, you now have to pay for them. Yeah. So, you know, how long are you going to do that? The water's cut off, so you have to deal with that problem. Yeah. So a lot of the Ukrainian speakers just left. Yeah. They, you know, why should we suffer? We're not interested in being part of Russia. Putin has a uh, an election in his parliament that where he uh, proposes that this become a part of, of Russia, of the Russian state. Yeah. So it's not a foreign land. It's part of Russia. Now, that does a couple of things. He's done the same thing with Donbass uh, in the last year. Mm -hmm. The reason why you do this, when you mobilize conscripts, by law in Russia, conscripts don't fight outside of Russia. Mm -hmm. They're used for the defense. The regular army you can send out if you volunteer you know, yeah. you can attack uh, the Ukraine, you can attack uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, wherever. That's perfectly legal. So one of the reasons he needed to declare all four of the provinces in the east that he's taken, Lugansk, Donetsk, yeah. Zaporozhye, Kershaw, is that now you're fighting in Russia. So there's a method, a method to his madness. Oh, yeah, there's a method say. to his madness. Yeah. You, you know, Putin is a lawyer. A lot yeah. of people don't realize it. He was trained as a lawyer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we've got some buildup there about how we got to where we are today. And um, to kind of finish setting the table, so to speak, of this, of the rest of this conversation, you know, so just looking at the last 11 months, let's say, looking at the last okay. 11 months. The Russians have been pushed out of central Ukraine. Yeah. They pushed back across the Belarusian and Russian borders in the north. Yeah. In the east, they have been pushed back from all the areas they initially conquered about a third of that yeah. has been taken back okay uh, now so we're first fighting this war of defense pushing back everywhere yeah once the success was had in the the north from belarus yeah those troops were then moved over to the east and began attacks 
in the various cities that had been taken. Yeah. Uh, and as I said, about a third of the land that had been taken in the east now has um, has come back under control of the Ukrainians. Okay. Understand the major cities like Mariupol, yeah. the largest port in Ukraine, yeah. that's larger than Odessa on the Black Sea. Uh, they were destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, so these cities are just there's there is no port there. I mean, yeah. you've got the land and these destroyed buildings, and where it looks. And I'm going to give you a little bit of Jim thinking. If I were a general staff officer in the Ukrainian army, yeah. what I would want to do, if you can break the, the the two provinces to the north and the two provinces to the south, you want to break them in half. Yeah. So you can, with an armored thrust, you move in and go all the way to the Sea of Azov. Yeah. So that's about a hundred clicks. Uh, 60 miles or so, you go through that. Then you wheel your army to the right and move south. You push the Russians out of Zaporozhye and Kershaw. Mm -hmm. You take the city of Kershaw, which they did about two months ago. Now you can seal off the Ukraine. I'm sorry, seal off Crimea. You destroy the bridge that was built in 2016 uh, with a rail line, a water line, Uh and a four-lane highway. You knock out that bridge so the Russians can't resupply, and now you start going after Crimea. Okay, okay. So that would be where I would be going if I were a Ukrainian general planning the operation. And everything I've seen indicates that they're doing exactly what I would do. Yeah. If I'm advising them, that's, you know, as a war college exercise, that would be the school solution as to how we would do that. Well, and and who knows the these pod, it's amazing how these podcasts can travel the world. So who knows who's listening? Who knows who could be listening to some of these That's suggestions? True. Well, people are reading some of the stuff I write. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know if you listen today to uh, to to General Milley and Secretary Austin. They are saying a lot of the things I've been pushing the mm-hmm. last three months. Mm-hmm. They are starting to say those kinds of things. Okay, let let me ask you this, Jim. Anything in the last eleven months? Um, of developments, it could have happened a week ago, ten months ago. Has anything surprised you? You know, I know your experience in this region goes back so far. Anything surprise you in how it developed? The Ukrainians learned modern warfare faster than I thought. I, they were tough. We yeah. knew that. Uh, you know, Odessa was one of the six hero cities of the Soviet Union in the Second World War. These guys are tough. They took on the Germans. You know, they fought them. Yeah. They fought them very well. Uh, and also the inside joke in the military is that in the old Soviet military, the 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 rest of the Soviet Union, you know, all of Russia, Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, yeah. they had plenty of troops. The brains were in the Ukraine. Okay, Ukraine is where the guidance systems and the rocket engines were made. For the Soviet, uh, the Soviet yeah. missiles in the space program. Yeah. So guidance, the engines, you know, that stuff was made in the Ukraine. Now the big stuff, you know, the roll steel that comes from all over. Uh-huh. But these guys were the brains. Yeah. So clearly, they got after that three month defense of their capital, they got maneuver warfare. So modern maneuver warfare, using tanks, using APCs, using anti-armor, using their air defense. They cleaned up their skies mm-hmm. so that the Russians couldn't use their superior air force. Yeah. They've got more airplanes, but if you can't fly, it doesn't do you any good if they're on the ground in Russia. Yeah. Now you only have to fight the guy in front of you on the ground. Yeah. And they're about the same size. Yeah. Up until recently, yeah. we're talking the, the invasion force was about 209,000 okay. on the Russian side and about just right at 200,000, a little bit below 198,000 yeah. were in the military and defense. Yeah. Now, the first thing uh, Zelensky did, he got good advice, was that no male over 18 can leave. You know, when people started lining up for the trains to go sure. to Poland, fine, take your family to the border. You can't go. So we've got now two, still somewhere around 200,000 people in their regular military. Mm-hmm. There are another 150 to 200,000 that have been trained in the reserves. Now we're talking three, four months of training plus combat. So they're combat-ready forces. You know, they, they haven't yeah. been in as long as the regulars, but they're getting good at what they're doing. Yeah. So that's happening. And they're treating the Russians at three, three to one. So for every Ukrainian soldier we lose, we lose three 
three uh, three Russians. Gotcha. So the Russians didn't do maneuver war very very well. Yeah. When the Ukrainians started maneuvering using their armor, going after Zaporozhye, they were able to make that cut I told you about going toward the center. Yeah. So they took Mariupol back. Now it's destroyed, yeah. but the Russians were defending it not because they want Mariupol. There's no port left. They were defending it because that's how you kill the enemy. Yeah. You know, think about war in the Middle Ages. It's a chess game. You want to take the castle, take the king. Well, modern war, you want to destroy the enemy's ability to engage in combat operations. Yeah. So you need to destroy their support and supplies, first of all. Then they don't have the wherewithal to fight. Then you want to seal off the enemy, separate them, and defeat them in detail. And the detail that you have is you pick what are the rivers, the roads, the the railroads, what are the network features in the country Mm -hmm. that you have to take to continue the war uh, on your, your, your half. So they started taking those places back and have done very well at it with the um, I, I, I have a short article uh, that I put out about three months ago that talks about logistically wars are you know when when all soldiers get together when strategists get together they don't talk about bravery and tactics I mean that's all fine and we need it yeah you have to, have to win the war if you're going to fight for a long time you have to have the impedimenta of warfare yeah you need food you need water you need ammunition you need transport vehicles. Um, a typical uh, Soviet motorized division, it's about 10,000. Yeah. An American division, uh, an infantry division is about 14,000. Airborne divisions are a little larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, tank and mech infantry divisions are about 18,000. Mm-hmm. And the Marines have this big fat division. They ought to call it a corps, but they're already a Marine Corps. Yeah. But it's almost like two divisions. They're about 20,000. Yeah. But they have their own air force with them. The Russians in their divisions have about one-fourth the amount of trucks that an American division would have. Okay. So if you think about that, they're set up to fight a different way. If you're going to defend Russia, you send your division out. It's in Russia. You've got a railroad behind it that's going to support it. Well, we are expeditionary. We're going to fight somewhere else. Uh So if we land on the beach, you're on your own. How are you going to supply? If you remember World War II after uh, D-Day, the Red Ball Express... So that was a famous unit, mostly black soldiers, that supported Patton's Third Army. Uh What they did is travel around the clock with trucks so that one road, you would go in one direction, another road, you would come back. You would get food, fuel, ammunition to keep up with Patton, who was moving 30 miles a day. Jeez. The army wasn't designed to move 30. The other army (laughs) did not move 30 miles a day. The third army moved twice as far on average as the other armies. The the logistical uh, details to that alone just blow my mind. How how you can keep everybody fed, equipped, intelligence, sharing intelligence, all of that stuff. Wow. And remember, you know, we, we had um, by 1944, the middle of 1944, we had um, near 69 divisions in the field. Yeah. Now, we were an army with three divisions in 1939, yeah. 60, and we had more troops at home training. Yeah. We thought the war was going to go on until 1948 or 49, yeah. so we had 69 divisions in the field. So you had to keep all of those people fed and operating. We had altogether more than 16 million under 16 million men under arms yeah. at the end of the war. Well, I'm and I'm glad you brought up the topic of the impedimenta of war, you know, the the um basic necessities, the equipment. I wanted to ask, you know, the United States and some of the other allies are providing a lot of this to Ukraine, right? That's the, yes. something that's coming through from And a lot more was authorized a few hours ago. Yes. Uh did those include any of the uh the German Leopard tanks because I know that- uh, there will be some uh, some Leopards uh, okay. and some Challengers. So okay. the British are, are offering up a squadron of Challengers. Okay. That's about 15. There are 14 Leopards right now. Yeah. And the Germans say more. They won't quite tell us yeah. what the more will be, but okay. they've authorized the Poles to send more. OK, interesting. They're not sending any of their own yet. Sure. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask because like, you know, obviously support to Ukraine now and in the past few months can take a lot of forms. Uh, you can give support through equipment. You can give support through direct funds, just giving them money, right. sharing of intelligence between agencies and things like that. To you, Jim, what do you think of all the support that has been shown to Ukraine from its allies? 
are there like two or three that you you're seeing as like the most useful to Ukraine right now, or have been the most helpful? Kind of what they're the, doing. The, the, the at first, I would respond to that by saying the anti armor capability and the Ukrainians' ability to use it is phenomenal. Okay. So they've taken uh, small rockets, the Gustav, uh, and other individually fired weapons. You know, one man or yeah. our two man team fires a armor defeating missile. And that takes out a tank mm-hmm. at uh, as far away as two miles. Wow. Uh, but the, typically they will get a lot closer. But the weapon is good for two miles mm-hmm. if you've got an open field. If you're fighting in northern Virginia, two miles would be fine. You know, if you're fighting in Mississippi in the forest, you know, you're not going to be able to see two miles. Sure. Well, it depends on where you are. So they have taken those and learned to operate them and done very well. Okay. That's new warfare for them technologically so they've done very well with that yeah then the next thing are the 155 uh, millimeter howitzers the uh, m777 yeah and there that's a towed weapon and the also there are self-propelled artillery mm-hmm. so it looks like a tank mm-hmm. it's a little bit lighter uh so that gives some protection to the crew inside mm-hmm. so they typically move with armored forces so if you move your tank 25 miles the self-propelled artillery moves along with the tank column. Mm-hmm. It can stop as you attack, set up, and fire. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainian uh, fire direction control has been fantastic. Yeah, uh, None of the M777s have been lost to the enemy. Wow. So what they have figured out is that you arrive in a, in a location, self-propelled or towed artillery, mm-hmm. you set it up. Uh, self, 777s can throw a good crew ought to be able to fire three or four rounds per minute, mm-hmm. you know, once the gun is set up. Mm-hmm. takes about 10 minutes to set it up. Once you f- you fire those three or four rounds in the first minute at an enemy that's in a fixed position with good computer skills, yeah. they know where you are. The Ukrainians do what we call shoot and scoot. They fire four rounds, five rounds, six rounds, maybe three minutes. Three minutes, the enemy knows where they are. They're gone. Wow. So when the Russians return, what we call counter-battery fire, they're just chopping up Ukrainian fields. Oh, my gosh. They're not killing Ukrainian troops. They have learned how to do that. That's modern warfare in its best. So the anti-armor capability in the beginning – and now the uh, the artillery, which goes after the fixed locations where the Russians have dug in. So that's how they've been able to push the Russians back. Okay. Now, the problem is the next phase of warfare. So we went from World War II maneuvering, defending the capital, to World War One over on the, uh, e- the eastern border because the Russians were already there for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, they took some more once they came in, but they had already been there since 2014. Mm-hmm. Donas Lugansk. Now they came into Zaporozhye and Kershan, but they dug they dug in right away yeah. because the Ukrainians didn't have enough troops to defend the northern part of the country and the eastern part of the country. Okay. You will notice as you read in the newspapers now that we are seeing the Belarusian army has mobilized. So that's about 40,000 with their reserves. Yeah. I don't think they're coming across the border. They'd have their 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 butts handed to them in in short order. But there are Russians up there, too. They're mobilizing on behalf of who? Russia, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, when you do this in the north, what happens if the battle is in the east? Now, the Ukrainians have to take some of the troops fighting on the east against that line in Donbass and Zaporozhye and Kershan. They have to swing back north above Kiev to be prepared for an attack. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think an attack is coming. But you don't know mm-hmm. if they're mobilizing. It wouldn't take much if you've got nothing up mm-hmm. there. You've got very light forces defending. So you will have to take some troops from the east and put in the north just in case. Yeah. That will weaken you in the east where the major battle is. Yeah. And remember, the, uh, the the rule of thumb that we have when you're attacking an entrenched enemy uh-huh. uh, in a fixed position is three to one. Okay. If they're dug in, they've got good artillery, you need combat power of three to one. If it's only infantry, that's people. Yeah. If it's um, artillery and armor, then it's also equipment. That's one of the reasons why now I'm pushing, as well as a number of my colleagues, for the Ukrainians to get a lot more armor quickly. Mm-hmm. I would say a thousand tanks would not be out of the question. Mm-hmm. If they could put a thousand tanks to good use and do what I said, split that eastern occupation yeah. zone, the Russians hold the Russians in the northeast in place, 
pushed the Russians in the southeast down back into Crimea, then pushed them through Crimea and crushed them. Yeah. Okay. That's the way to win the war. Okay. Well, that's you answered a, a, a couple of follow up questions I had right there. So I appreciate that. Where we are, where we need to go. Yeah. Exactly. Um, changing tact here for a second. I am. Um, I have never traveled to Russia. I've always wanted to, but um, I've never stepped foot on Russian soil. And I wanted to ask. Well, of, you could probably go now, but I'm not sure we could get you out. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if now's the time. Now's the time. But no, I, not be- I wanted to to get your thoughts as someone who spent time over there, kind of what it's like in Russia right now for the average Joe, the average Jill in Russia. You know, okay. what is it like for the people of Russia? Because I know some of the strategy the application of sanctions, things like that, is attempting to create conditions in Russia that allow for a Ukrainian or, or uh, facilitate a Ukrainian victory. What is it like for the average people of Russia? How, you know, well, well, first of all, by, by by way of full disclosure, I have not been to Russia. Okay, I've not been. I was supposed to go in 2016 to be a monitor for the. Uh, I'm sorry, 2018 to be a monitor for the, that election. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up on a ship s- sailing around the world teaching international law. Wow. Okay. So I did Not that a bad instead. And in some way, well, it was an easy decision to make at the time, uh-huh. but I probably will not get a chance to go. Okay. To, given what I've done for a living, yeah. I'm not sure you're interested in me coming for a visit. But the Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, I spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Uh, the new 14, 15 nations that are in NATO. Yeah. I was on the DOD team that negotiated nine of those in into the organization. Okay. So I know this from the DOD side. I know some of these nations as an OSCE election observer of the last four national elections in the Ukraine. I've been there for three of those. Got it. Well, uh, let so, me let me ask a, a different question, though. And, you know, there is definitely room for for speculation here, acknowledging what you just just mentioned. Do do we know or have a good idea about what it's like for the Russian people at this point as sanctions are applied and and, and Putin is spinning his his side? Sure, of we're things. getting reports. We, we we are getting, I think, fairly uh, fairly good reports. And remember, not only are we getting reports through the normal channels, and of course you get their news. Russia today will tell you everything is wonderful. Okay, you know, come for vacation. But we're also seeing somewhere around. 500,000 Russians have left just since the mobilization. Wow. Now, remember the mobilization, supposedly it's Mm 300,000. That was the number that we were given. But now remember what I told you about the law. You can't send a conscript outside. So we were given the information from the defense ministry. They were looking at mobilizing 300,000. Mm-hmm. They've apparently done that. 150 are in training, mm-hmm. long-term training, about six months to produce a good soldier. Yeah. The other 150,000 were used as filler for the units that had been decimated near the front. Yeah. So to fill up the ranks of people who were killed. Yeah. So they didn't have a supposedly the previous training, but sometimes that's 10, 15 years old. Weapon systems are new. They've changed. Yeah. So you know people have to sort of learn on the job. Combat doesn't give you a lot of opportunity for OJT. You either get it right or you're dead. And and what's so, what's OJT? Oh, uh, on the job training. Got it. Okay. On the That's job right. training. So learning while doing in combat is probably not good. Yeah. You want your troops trained on the weapons and the systems, and you want them trained by people who are combat veterans. Yeah. So they can share their personal experiences in addition to giving you the technological uh, knowledge that you need to operate this new and fancy equipment. Mm-hmm. So these conscripts, this 150,000 first group that went to the front, they are being killed at much higher numbers than the older troops. I mean, mm-hmm. we've we've seen that already. Also, they are surrendering in higher numbers. Yeah. So some of them are smart enough to figure out when I get up to the front, look around, nobody's watching me, nobody's close. You put up your hands, throw down your weapon, run forward and surrender, and the Ukrainians will take you as a prisoner, and you will be well treated. Yeah. Do we? And they will send you home if you don't want to go. Yeah. You want to become a Ukrainian, you can apply for Ukrainian citizenship and stay. If you want to go home, they will send you back. Yeah. But they can also get more. See, they've they've said 300,000. That doesn't mean they have to stop. Yeah. So if it's 500,000, whatever it is they they need. Yeah. 
and they're committed to, and they would need somewhere around five or 600,000 to have, remember that three to one. Yeah. So yeah. the areas that the Ukrainians have taken, they have dug in. As I said, it's like World War One now. Mm-hmm. So we're digging trenches on both sides. They're dug in because they've used up the things that we've sent them. They've used it well, yeah. but they've used it up. That's why I'm saying now we probably need somewhere around a thousand tanks. Yeah. Okay. So if it's I'm 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 hearing conditions that sound a lot like a stalemate of sorts. Um, That's where we are right now. Got it. And we're expecting the Russian onslaught uh, as soon as they have that other 150 train, the yeah. 150,000 train, yeah. that, uh, they will be ready to start up again yeah. with a more offensive capability. In the in the event of a a longer stalemate, a protracted stalemate between these two uh, combatants, does one be- does does that situation benefit Russia more? Do you think? Does it benefit Ukraine more? Do you think a longer drawn out stalemate? Good, good question. If we just look at numbers, the overall geopolitical situation, mm-hmm. I would say the initial beneficiary of the Russians, they are at 150 million, just about 150 million. Mm-hmm. So they're roughly three times the size okay. of the Ukraine. So they've got a deeper draw upon which to pull people out of. However, the Ukrainians have put together now remember they lost everything when the russians when the soviet union fell apart yeah that a lot of the logistical support capability and the weapons were taken away so when we have given them new things particularly since 2014 yeah. and training their supply and systems are better trucks that are necessary to get things to the front uh they've got low boys large flatbed trucks See, tanks, you don't want to move long distance on the road. Mm. One, it tears up the road. But let me tell you, the roads are so bad in the Ukraine, you wouldn't know. That <laughs> what's the difference? It's potholed and terrible before the war. It's potholed and terrible after the yeah. war. But if you can put the tank on a truck, on a, on a low boy, we call them, mm-hmm. on one of these flatbed trucks, you can take the tank 100 miles, then let it drive off, and then go fight. Yeah. The track life is increased. Yeah. So if you've got, let's say, a 500-mile track life, uh, before tracks get loose, they have to be adjusted and, and serious maintenance done. Mm-hmm. If I can knock out 100 miles off of that, 150, because you're not driving that much during combat. Mm-hmm. So 400 miles left. 400 combat miles, mm-hmm. that might take you five or six months. Yeah. Because you're not moving long distances. But if you have to move the t- what we call administrative moves, yeah. with the track vehicles, that wears them out, you yeah. know, much, much quicker. They're, they're not designed as road vehicles. Sure. Now, I will notice today that somebody has figured that out because among the package that went out today, more than 50 striker vehicles, which is a six-wheeled armored car, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, an eight-wheeled armored car that was part of the package today okay and the strikers there are six variants of the strikers now it wasn't mentioned what the mix was like that one is just an infantry per carrier it's a it's a personnel carrier but mm-hmm. it's wheeled instead of track mm-hmm. like a uh, like a bradley but another has a turret with a 105 millimeter tank gun on it mm-hmm. so it's a vehicle that can kill another tank at maximum effective range mm-hmm. now it can't take a major hit you know, it's a, it's a 30-ton vehicle that can go down the road at almost 60 miles an hour. Wow. So if now if you want, want large-scale movements in your rear area, these strikers can pull out of combat. You can put them on a road. They can travel down the road. It's a wheeled vehicle. Pull back off into a field and charge a Russian fixed position. And the version that has this 105, that was the main tank gun of the United States mm-hmm. from about 1958 until we got the uh, the M1, the the, the upgunned M1, the yeah. M1. The first M1s, uh, Abrams tanks, yeah. the first ones came with 105 millimeter guns, the old tank gun. Then we upgunned to the German Rheinmetaller 120 millimeter. I mean, smooth. if I saw a column of armored vehicles heading at me at 60 miles an hour, I would probably think twice. Yeah, well, you would you would think you know this may not be the place I want to be right. because remember, they can get around here much faster yeah. than track vehicles. Yeah. So that if you can flank a Russian armored column yeah. with track vehicles, yeah. you know you've got some tanks fixing them in a in a short fight. You get these strikers around the flanks on the side; they can wail away at them with this hundred and five millimeter gun and take them out. 
Jim, remind me of something, because because right now I am blown away by your technical knowledge of some of these vehicles, some of these. I things. was an armor officer. Thank you. Okay. I started. I started life. You know, after I graduated from college, I went to grad school for a year. Yeah. And then I was called to active duty. I was a regular army officer. Yeah. And I go to Fort Knox, Kentucky. And uh, when I uh, finished law school, finished my PhD, I was looking for a uh, subject to write on. Uh-huh. I went out to Rand. I was supposed to work on some legal theory. Yeah. The numbers crunchers hadn't finished the data. So the head of political science said, well, we've got you here for a summer to work on a dissertation. Why don't you go downstairs to the skip, the secret room, talk to the military people. Do they have something for you? I go downstairs and ran. I didn't have a security clearance with them yet. So there's a Dutch door. You know, the top opens. Mm-hmm. You sign in if you're going to go into the room. So I'm standing there. I can't go in. I'm standing there. Introduce myself. There's a conversation going on. Ed Caesar, who developed the M119 gun site, Jim Digby, who developed the MIRV in the 50s, were talking to, and these are older guys at RAND, they were talking to a recently retired Army uh, Lieutenant Colonel, a, an infantry type. You could tell from the back. I didn't know him. By the white sidewalls. Uh-huh. You know, he still had the haircut. Yeah. And what he says to these gentlemen is that the study is stymied right now. What we need is a young armor officer with bright ideas. I leaned over the double Dutch door and said, I'm a young officer, armor officer with a lot of bright ideas. <laughs> and my dissertation work started there. Oh, serendipitous. <laughs> I helped develop what's called the Dragoon Squadron. Uh-huh. That was something like what we do now with strikers. But the idea was if you had to go to the Eastern Med, you had to fight in Turkey and Southern Greece. Yeah. The Greeks, the, the Turks have four field armies. You don't need to bring them artillery. You don't need to bring them infantry. Yeah. What you do need to give them is an armor killing capability and air defense. So I developed a ground unit that could do that. It would move faster than a traditional armor unit, yeah. have a lot of punch, but would be lighter weight. Got it. Okay. That's what I did for my dissertation. That is that explains it. That explains yeah. it. I and think. I'm still in the militia. Yeah. I'm in the I'm the, the uh, chief historian for the California militia. I did not know that either. I'm just yeah. well, this is 54 years. You know, it's connected with the military. Yeah, awesome. And besides the war college, I taught at the Naval Postgraduate School before that. Yeah. So, and I know I want to be respectful of time because I know we're coming up on an hour, but um, you know. Given your your extensive subject matter expertise and the comparatively absence of subject matter ex- expertise held by the general American public, let's say, is there anything that you'd recommend people pay attention to? Any particular topics, any particular um, economic considerations, cultural considerations, ethnic considerations, some of the things that we talked about that you think would be good for the dilettante, the the layman to pay attention well, to. Looking at both sides of this, let's look at the Russians first. You know, we sort of think of the, we thought of the old Soviet Union, we thought all communists as monolithic. You know, the Vietnamese, huh? the North Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Russians, you know, the, the Russians and the Chinese fell apart about 57. You know, shortly after the Korean War, the, um, the Chinese thought the Russians didn't do enough and they were now larger so their view was, look, we're the senior communist country, but you're still treating us like the stepchild. Uh-huh. So Mao didn't like that. Well, it was years before we took advantage of this rift, this Sino-Soviet rift. We, we just didn't know. Uh-huh. It wasn't what we looked at. When we, uh, we went into Vietnam, we didn't understand that Ho Chi Minh used the Declaration of Independence for his own document and started to use our constitution. Uh-huh. And in 1946... When uh, General Stilwell was coming back to the United States from his tour in the Pacific at the end of World War II, Ho Chi Minh got in touch with him. He had great respect for Stilwell because he fought in the jungle. Yeah. And uh, he said he wanted to meet with the State Department and wanted to ally himself to the United States. Those 58,000 people killed in Vietnam, imagine that the State Department not said to General Stilwell, General, you fight the wars. We'll worry about politics. Thank you very much. We don't want to talk to him. Yeah. What if Ho Chi Minh had come to the United States? Yeah. We had worked with him. What Ho Chi Minh wanted was to get rid of the French. Yeah. He didn't want to be a colony. That you know, we fought the Japanese. Uh, we fought the French before. We don't want to get rid of the Japanese. Have the French return, make us a colony again. Okay. And of course, you know that that went on for ten years. Then we show up, 
uh, as advisors, you know, after DNB and Fu. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, we kept raising it up until from 1957 until 1969, when we had 500,000 troops there. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a war we didn't have to fight had we been a little more farsighted and a little more open to, okay, they're socialists, they're communists, but they're not necessarily monolithic with the Chinese. They're not part of our enemies. We pushed them into the enemy camp. So now take that, keep that in mind. Russia has a hundred and over 160 ethnic groups, various ethnic groups. The Tartars are the largest and they are less than 20 million. So that 147 million Russians, it's not all one people. That if you go into uh, far eastern uh, Russia, uh, you've got people, they they look and sound like Koreans, Uh like Turkmen, like Cossacks, like Kyrgyz. Uh, like uh, uh, Turkmen people, Mm -hmm. because that's what they are. Mm -hmm. The Russian Empire moved for 300 years into Asia, and it gathered those people in to a loose confederation. They were never really Russified, except their names, and Russian became the lingua franca. Uh Those people are not necessarily Russian in a what we call... um, a strategic sense with the strategic culture, yeah. how they look at the outside world. A lot of them are natives. You know, we have people who are the, the native Russians in the very far uh, east of Siberia. Yeah. They are related to the Aleuts in Alaska. They're the same people. So Russia, west of the Urals, the European Russians, those are the people who have been the traditional enemies of the Germans mm-hmm. uh, in the last 250 years. Mm-hmm. But not all those other people out in Central Asia, they don't care about this fight, and they are doing the fighting. They're ah. the people who are conscripted. Uh, more of them are picked up than the people out of European Russia from from St. Petersburg, from, from Moscow. Uh-huh. Uh, these guys with educations, with a Western point of view, they know what's going on yeah. in the West. They don't see this as as their war. Yeah. And if you take them and draft them, then who's going to run your industry? Yeah. So you go get these guys who are from out there in the hinterlands. You get them to fight. And they're thinking, well, what do I have against the Ukrainian? Remember, for some of these people, the Ukraine is 4,000 miles away. Yeah. So, so pay attention to the makeup, the makeup of the Russian military, it sounds like. Yes, the Russian military and the Russian people, this is going to be solved by negotiations. If Putin isn't able to win, I don't think politically he can hold his position. That if you lose in a dictatorship, we give you absolute power, but you have to guarantee that you'll deliver on the things you promise. Mm -hmm. Because we've given you everything we've got. You're the dictator. We do what you say. Mm -hmm. You lost. You took us into this war. It isn't running People aren't happy. Mm-hmm. The If you think about the oligarchs as a large mafia family, which is how I look at them, mm-hmm. uh, I had a friend some years ago who called this a thugocracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like if you think about the election of 1932, mm-hmm. if Al Capone ran against Franklin Roosevelt and he won, mm-hmm. stealing the country would be very easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm a former prosecutor. We used to say the easiest way to rob a bank is to own it. Yeah. That's the thief you've got to watch, the one in the blue pinstripe suit. So if you've got this thugocracy, these billionaires are there because Putin controlled the economy and he controlled the politics so they could make money. Well, now you've got sanctions. You can't sell anything outside of the country. You're no longer making money. Mm -hmm. So the oligarchs who were going to be loyal to you because they were rich, they're not going to get any richer. Mm -hmm. Their yachts are being seized by the Italian government. Mm -hmm. Their property in England, in Chelsea... Uh, you can't have your kids staying at your house in Chelsea and enjoying the nightlife in London yeah. because they're no longer welcome there. They're going to be unhappy. So who does that leave on your side? The Wagner Group? That's yeah. 40,000 people. Yeah. So how are you going to keep the polity in Russia together if you lose this war? Yeah. And, of course, remember, there's no – as Sam Giancana said uh, back in the 60s, uh, as a mafia don, there's no retirement program. Yeah. You know, how do I step down? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like a recipe for a, a uh, 
desperate dictator, if you ask well, me. You, you back him into a corner. Yeah. If we don't do anything, he keeps doing this. Yeah. If we stop him, he's back into a corner. Now, at what point does he give an order so drastic that his generals or his ministers say, look, it's time for you to go. You're going to get us all killed. Yeah. We're not following you down this road any, any longer. We don't know exactly where that point is. Yeah. But now you remember when the Soviet Union fell yeah. all of the, uh, the the strategic thinkers and the analysts like me yeah. you know said no it's not about to go these are the guys who wrapped their feet in rags and yeah. went across the frozen volga to fight the supermen from berlin mm-hmm. uh, well you know what the soviet union fell mm-hmm. and just like that a deal was offered uh, yeah. they couldn't have guns and butter and Gorbachev said, listen, we're willing to uh, let Germany reunite and to back out of the Warsaw Pact. Yeah. Uh, you guys don't expand NATO. Ign- acknowledging that neither of us have a crystal ball, how cl- how close or how far do you think we are from a, uh, a situation like that? Oh, there we go. That could work. Someone said, some politician said that... Uh, we are strong as long as we're good. Mm-hmm. When we stop being good, we stop being strong. I would say if the value is democracy, territorial integrity, political independence, and we are siding with those values, and most of the world is in agreement with us. I mean, there are people who agree with the Russians, yeah. but most of the world is in agreement with us. As long as we're leading the coalition of those who are fighting for those values, I think we are safe. We're strong and we will prevail. That Russia, we we've got uh, in NATO, we've got about twenty six thousand combat aircraft. Mm -hmm. The Russians have five thousand. So if we talk about a conventional exchange and warfare in the air and in technology, Mm -hmm. we'll win that. Mm -hmm. Now on the ground, soldier to soldier, the Russians are prepared to defend Russia. Do that. They've, they've got troops on the ground. They can do that. That's fine. But what we're worried about is their ability to project power. Yeah. They can't project power over a country one third their size on their border. Uh-huh. That's been demonstrated. Now, that country has got a, a, a very deep pocket because they're being backed up by not only the 30 nations in NATO, but you will notice today the uh, what we call the frontline nations uh-huh. supporting Ukraine, that's now 53. But there are only 203 nations on earth. Yeah. You know, and a lot of them are very small. You know, Malta isn't there yeah. with, yeah. with a lot of things. Sure. You know, New Guinea isn't there. Guinea yeah. Basai uh, isn't there. Yeah. Uh, Crete's not there, but the big nations are there. Yeah. They're there. We're supporting it. I don't see the Russians resorting to nuclear weapons because we've got enough to destroy them five or six times over. Okay. Now they would destroy. You know, the world would be in terrible shape. Sure. You know, if that happened, I don't see the Russians as being suicidal. Yeah. Just because someone has a different value system than you have doesn't mean they're insane. Yeah. You know, Putin worked his way up from being a a former intelligence agent. Uh, And being the local logistics guy in Leningrad, Mm -hmm. now St. Petersburg, uh, and working for the mayor, being the mayor's hitman, if you will. Mm -hmm. One of his professors was a friend of uh, of the former uh, the former president, the first president of of Russia, Mr. uh, Mr. Yeltsin. And so Putin was sent down to Moscow as, hey, this young man is really good, knows where the bodies are buried. He was in intel, but he knows the logistics, what you need, the levers of power. He goes down, and from being an assistant, he works his way up to becoming Yeltsin's replacement. Yeah. He's not insane. Now, he's got a different value system. Sure. You know, Amalthea Don's not insane. They're very logical. If you accept that if I kill you and steal what you have, I will have more than you. It's a zero-sum game. Yeah. Now, that's just a different value system. Sure. That doesn't mean he's insane. He has no morals. Yeah. But he's not insane. So these people say, oh, he's insane. You know, I, that's not true. That that That's not good strategic thinking on our part yeah. to assume that he's insane. He understands us very well. Yeah. He thought we were going to come apart that NATO would come apart because they would look at a war in the East as, first of all, not my business. Mm -hmm. That's over there. It's in the old Russian zone. They didn't attack a NATO country. We're okay. Mm -hmm. And that the countries in the East, like Poland, the new, I call them the new hard center of NATO. It used to be Germany. Now it's Poland. That Poland would care. When we were negotiating 
Poland in the NATO. Yeah. Every day you would hear a comment. Uh, I spent a lot of time with the uh, commander in chief of land forces and his staff. And as a 14-year-old boy, he had thrown Molotov cocktails at German tanks. Whoa. This was a tough old guy. Sure. This was a tough old guy. And I was the one who got picked on the team to tell him, when you come into NATO, you know you have to let the Germans bid on new military equipment. Mm -hmm. So they have they get to bid on your new tank. They don't have to win, mm -hmm. but they have to bid. They're your sister nation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why the team picked me to do that. Because I had been there longer and yeah. had gotten along with these guys. They'd been to my house and in yeah. Santa Cruz. But I thought, you know, what have I done wrong that I've got to go tell this guy who threw Molotov cocktails at German tanks? You got to, they loved it. They said, fine, write that up. Yeah. Well, it's a constitutional problem in Poland. When I dealt with the SIM, the Senate, uh, the head of the Military Affairs Committee said, you're a lawyer. Write up constitutionally what we need to do mm -hmm. to take by NATO. By NATO uh, shouldn't be, by Poland, should not be in your constitution. Make it a statute so you can change it easily. That's a bad piece of constitutional law. We talked about that with their constitutional experts. And I changed the law. I wrote up a new law for them, which they adopted. And uh, they came into NATO. And they would constantly ask, if we have more than we need, and we want to share something with the Ukraine. Is that okay? Yeah. And of course, being a good professor, my answer was that's way above my pay grade. Sure. That's above the pay grade of the Secretary of Defense. That's a president to president issue. But speaking as an American citizen, yeah. privately, my advice to you is don't ask that question. Yeah. Why would you ask a question where the possibility is no and it's what you want to do? If you have a bilateral relationship with the Ukrainians, they are your brothers. Yeah. Ukrainian and Polish are the same language. We use the Roman alphabet in one language. We use the Cyrillic alphabet in the other. But about 50% of the words, it's like English and German. Yeah. About 50%, 60% of the word basis are the same. Yeah. So these are your brothers. Deal with them. Do what you need to do on a bilateral basis. Meet your obligations with NATO and politically work out the difference, which is what they've done. Well, Jim, I I, I think we can totally treat this conversation as a as a survey. I feel like this was a survey conversation, and there were so many departure points that we could go down a lot farther than we did. So I hope you're you're open to that. Um, I do have one more question just yes, to sir. kind of wrap, wrap us up um you know thinking about the sacramento historical society thinking about the listeners uh to this podcast that may not have the expertise the experience um is there anything else you would want to add any considerations for those right. types of people books they right. can read right now i think there are two things we need to be thinking about mm -hmm. as a country as an alliance mm -hmm. the first one is that we need to dominate the situation in all ways, and we're not doing it politically. Mm -hmm. I think we have to at least begin to discuss removing Russia from the Security Council. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about new nations coming in. This could be, it's, it's Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, our current ambassador to Japan. He's famous for telling uh, at, at a meeting of the, uh, the National Security Council when he was chief of staff at the White House, never waste a crisis. This is a crisis. What can we do today in a crisis that in normal times you couldn't even get people to talk about? Yeah. And I think that's changing the UN because we see now that you need the coalition, not just the, the willing, the nations that are in NATO and are the, the quad that Japan, uh, Australia, uh, India and, uh, and South Korea, mm -hmm. not just them, but you need lots of the other. You need uh uh, Malaysia, you need Singapore, uh, you need Vietnam, uh, which the Vietnamese want us to come back. I spent some time in Vietnam uh, several years ago, and I looked under beds. I looked everywhere. I couldn't find a communist. These are the hardest working people I've ever seen. Yeah. Everybody wanted to know, was I in business? Uh, you know, I'm just a, a dumb professor, but am I in a business they can invest in? Yeah. You know, can they move some money to the United States and invest in it with, you know, that, that this, this does not sound like a communist nation yeah. to me. The no. government is certainly socialist, but the, uh, the Vietnamese culture is very entrepreneurial. These are people we need to attract into us. And to do that, you've got to make the UN a discussion facility basis for everybody to come in. That's sure. the first thing. The other thing that needs to be done right away, there needs to be between the EU, uh, 
uh, NAFTA and the Asian nations, there needs to be a fund set up to reconstruct Ukraine okay. right now. When this is over, Ukraine will probably be the best armed nation on earth. That, however, it's the full Ukraine. It's uh -huh. Ukraine minus a little bit of Donbass, which is maybe what will happen. You know, who knows? Yeah. It'll be settled by negotiations. They will be well armed. But we have to make them effective economically. The Sea of Azov has gas and oil reserves. The center of Ukraine, just west of Donbass, has gas. And we want to make sure whatever is worked out that they get that. Yeah. And of course, down in the Black Sea off of Odessa, oil and gas reserves, we're talking somewhere between three and 5% of the known reserves on Earth. So they could make up for whatever we lose from not buying from Russia. Yeah. So this can support the European rebuild. So the three C's initiative from, from Finland in the north, from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, yeah. down through Bulgaria, Romania, and into Odessa, we need to make sure that we've got wide gauge railroad. Okay. Let's tie the Ukraine in, that old narrow gauge Russian railroad. We have to get rid of that. The bridges that have been destroyed, the roads, and I told you they were bad before. Yeah. I can only imagine what this has been like. We've got to start looking at rebuilding them so they're economically viable as well as politically free, and they can participate in the rest of the world. They have probably the highest number of four-year universities per capita of any nation in Europe. Yeah, they have lots of schools. Now, not all of them are first caliber uniform, yeah. but they've got them. They recognize the value of, uh, of education. The Western part, as far as Lviv, that used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you've got people who speak German, yeah. who speak Polish, because the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the uh, 17th century tied a bunch of them in. Yeah. So they've been tied to the West in all sorts of ways. Yeah. They fought a year-long war in 1921 to separate themselves. So this isn't the first free Ukraine that after World War One, when the Bolshevik uh, Revolution, they fought to stay out. The problem was they didn't ally with the Poles. The Poles won and had 20 years of freedom until invaded by Hitler. Yeah. Had the Ukraine allied themselves with Poland, they could have beaten the Bolsheviks and maintained their freedom. Yeah. Well, Jim, I, I think that that's... Uh... That's my short end. Yeah, no, that's it's great. And I, I appreciate it. I think maybe um, I've been taking a lot of notes here that I, I would love to follow up with you on at a later date, of course. Sure. Um, yeah, we can do a third. Uh... And maybe and maybe by then we find our crystal ball and we can uh, we can speculate a little bit more and look into the future as best we can. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Sacramento Historical Society's The American Attic. If you'd like to learn more about the Society and upcoming speaker series, please visit sachistoricalsociety.org. If you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage, drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org. See you next time.